Amen. Amen. And what a moment just to sit in the presence of the Lord. Amen. That's what we're here to do. We're here to worship our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're going to, you're going to see a variety of ways that we do that from the text today, but just make no bones about it, that that's what we're here to do, to lift high the name of Jesus, to sit in his presence, to seek his face, and to make much of his name as we follow his word. Um, we're going to be in the gospel of John today as we continue um, just our series, Come and See. And again, the heart, the heart of our, the cry of our hearts, the heart of the God's word, the heart of, of God, is that you come and see Jesus today. Um, it's the heart of our elder team. It's the heart of Harvest. It's all about Jesus. And um, whatever you walked in here with, I just pray that you would see Jesus. Um, and uh, I just pray that you would see him lifted high and exalted because that's who he is. We're going to be in John chapter 2, if you want to get a head start there, as we continue our, our series. And we go verse by verse for the gospel of John as we look and see our Savior. Um, quick question for you. Um, survey question. It can be rhetorical if you don't want to embarrass yourself. That's okay. Um, who here, rhetorically speaking, has ever watched any bit of The Bachelor or The Bachelorette over the last 20 plus years that it's been on? Some of you are like, oh, you don't have to raise your hand. Some of you are loud and proud in the back. Way to go, Bakers. Uh, um, but yes, and I may or may not have watched some of it back in the day. Emphasis on the word back in the day. Um, a little bit of it. But what's really interesting is that basically you have a main cast member who is in theory single that is pursuing love in theory. I've got to use the word in theory a lot. Um, and they have, they gather 25 or so single guys to pursue the heart of a single lady and a 25 or so single ladies to pursue the heart of a single guy. And what happens uh, almost every season, very shortly into it, is all the contestants get amongst each other. They go to the main cast member and they go, so-and-so isn't here for the what? Right? Oh, Kelsey's quoting it. <laughs> calling yourself out over there. <laughs> Tommy's looking for the right reasons, right? They're not really here to pursue your heart. They're not here for the right. They want to in increase their social media status. They want to get a little more street card. They want to get cast for a future show. Like they have a boyfriend or girlfriend back home that their hearts are really with. They're just here for money or whatever it is. They're not here for the right reasons. And because of that, they're not here to seek love with you. That You should cast them away from you, right? You, you should eliminate them. You should send them home because they're heart is not here for the right reasons. Well, we're going to see in the text today in John chapter two, that when Jesus enters the heart of God, he is going to do the very same thing for those whose hearts are not there for the right reasons. He is going to look into the hearts of those gathered in the house of God and then send away those that are there for just not to worship God, but to worship themselves. You see, reverence to God is the highest priority for God. Reverence in the house of God. And it's a, when we talk about reverence, when we talk about worship, it is a heart issue. Jesus cares most about your heart. He cares about my heart. And here's the reality. He knows your heart. We're going to see that in the text. It's literally going to say, he knows all people. It says, it's going to, which means he knows your heart. He knows the reason why you're here today. So my question for you is, why are you here? What is the posture of your heart towards God? God is desiring authenticity and reality because what we're going to see today in the text is that there were people that dressed themselves up nice, had the, the look of, of religion, had, could probably quote a bunch of Bible verses, were literally existing in the house of God, probably knew people were there in theory to serve people, but they were really taking advantage of people. But all they were, they weren't true worshipers of God, but they were, in fact, false religious imposters. They looked apart on the outside, but on the inside, they were self-righteous. They were seeking to build the kingdom of self while they lived in the house of God. 
they weren't there to seek the glory of God. They were actually there out of selfish greed and self-serving ambition. And my question for you is this, is that you? Are you here to build your kingdom or God's kingdom? Are you here to seek your glory or God's glory? Because the starting reality from the text is that Jesus will deal, deal very swiftly and severely with you based on the condition of your heart. We will all stand before Jesus one day and have to give an answer for where our heart status is with God, with Jesus. And if your heart is not right with God, Jesus will cast you away from God. He did that today in the text. He's gonna do it for all of us if our hearts aren't right with him when we stand before him for eternity. If your heart is right with God through the grace of God, he will admit you and allow you to enter in eternity to spend forever with God. Praise God for that, amen. Today, I pray that you would see the greatness of God, the greatness of Jesus, the one who went to the cross for you as the text is gonna talk about. The grace of God that as we enter into the house, however you enter into this place of worship in person or online, one, I'm glad you're here. God's glad you're here. I just pray that you would be met here by the reality of who Jesus is and that you would experience his love for you unconditionally wherever you are and that you would be, allow yourself to be transformed. If you're around me recently over the last year or so, God's really laid this line in my heart. You hear this, you're gonna hear me say this often, often again. Two, two asks of you this morning is one, to be authentic, to be real. Be real about why you're here. We're all here for a variety of reasons. We're all here in a, in a myriad of spiritual conditions. Just be real. Here's the reality. Jesus already knows. He can fool me. He can fool your, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your friend. You can't fool God. And he's the one to whom you will give an account. Be real. And then be open. Be open to however God wants to work in your life because he wants to work in your life today. No matter where we are on our spiritual journey, every single one of us has, has parts of our heart at a minimum, if not our whole heart, that are irreverent towards God and that have a next step to take in growing in worship and reverence for God. Every single one of us, that, that ground is level. So the question is, where is that in you and what does God want to do in you and through you today? And will you allow him to? The big idea for this text, and you'll see it on the screen and in your notes, is this. That Jesus desires true worshipers, not religious imposters. True worshipers. What is, and then it's a, that's going to be a phrase that he'll refer, Jesus will use in John chapter 4. What is a true worshiper? We're going to look at that today. Authentic. Real. And you can be a true worshiper whether you're newer in your faith or you've been walking in your faith for myriads and decades to come. Not religious imposters. You can also be a religious imposter if you've been in the church all your life. Because it's about your heart. More about where you are physically is about where your heart is spiritually. And Jesus knows your heart. And worship is a 24-7 thing. It's not just a Sunday morning thing. Worship is a lifestyle. Worship literally is ascribing worth. And the way you worship God reveals the true heart posture that you have towards God. In every nook and cranny of your life, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, are you a true worshiper of God? Because that's what he's desiring. And frankly, that's what he deserves. And that's what he's demanding. Because he knows he's what's best for us. And when we see today that Jesus is greater what a joy and privilege we have to respond and to grow as a true worshiper. 
Amen. That's our heart. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for the privilege we have to be in your house. We, have, we thank you for the privilege we have to be in your presence. God, we thank you for the privilege that we have to, to pursue you in response to the work you've done for us on the cross, Jesus Christ. And God, I just pray that you would just open our hearts to the reality of why we're here. And God, uh, and that is to see you high and exalted and lifted up and to respond with worship, to respond with joy, to respond with obedience, to respond with reverence because you deserve it, God. And God, I pray that you would just meet us wherever we are. God, we all walked in here in, in a wide variety of places, situations in life, on the outside of our circumstances and in the interior conditions of our heart. Some are seeking, some are wandering, some are rebelling, some are questioning, some are hurting and grieving. God, some are, are yearning to grow in you and to continue to pursue after you. God, wherever we are, I just pray that you would meet us where we are, that we would see you for who you really are and that we would respond to you with the, in the reality of who you are, God, as a, out of a heart of reverence for you and what you've done for us. Jesus, we love you. In your name we pray, amen. Turn with me to John chapter two. John chapter two, beginning in verse 13 through the end of the chapter there in verse 25. This is a gospel of John as John the apostle wrote as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this is what the gospel says. The pastor of the, of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip out of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away from me. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he, he, Jesus, was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said, that he had said this, and they believed. The scripture, the word that Jesus had spoken at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. And when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because... He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. So verse 24 and 25 reveal the reality. What it's saying there is that Jesus knows your heart. Jesus knows what's inside of you. And not just some of us, the text says all of us. So however you're here, you can put on your religious best, you can put on your Sunday best, you can, you can do whatever you think you need to do to impress other people, but Jesus is not impressed by our outward appearance. God is looking at our hearts. Where's your heart at this morning? This text provides for us a spiritual checkup, if you would, of what is it, looking at what it means to be a true worshiper. What does it mean to be a true worshiper? Three attributes of what a true worshiper is. And just like you go for a yearly spirit, a physical exam and the doctor's like, hey, you should probably check this area. You should probably get a little more physical exercise. You might wanna change your earthly diet over here. In the same way today, as we look at a spiritual examination of our own hearts, may the Holy Spirit work in our hearts and go, hey, you might wanna change your spiritual diet here. You might wanna consume more of God's word. 
You might want to change your exercise patterns and change your disciplines to increase just your, your pursuit of the Lord and priority of the Lord. It's going to reveal to you some potentially unhealthy habits that we have the opportunity through the grace of God to make a change in. And I pray that you would open your heart and allow the heart of God to work in you. Just God took me to the mat this week in this text. He revealed areas of my own heart of spiritual pride that have been locked away for a long time. It's hurtful, it's painful, but I'm thankful and I'm grateful for the grace of God that forgives us from wherever we are and as we confess our sins and God works and God moves in a big way. So what's going on in this text? The first attribute of the heart of a true worshiper is this, is that the true worshiper has the heart, the, the right posture, authentic reverence, the right posture of your heart, authentic reverence. This, this text takes us to Passover. What is Passover? Passover was an annual feast. It was one of the feasts that Jewish, Jewish men in particular were required if you live within 15 miles of Jerusalem to physically attend. It was a commemoration and a remembering of Exodus, what happened in Exodus when God at the first Passover saved his people from death of their firstborn. By what? By the slaughter of a spotless lamb and the spreading of that blood on their doorposts. The Passover is a festival celebrating the deliverance of God and pointing to the ultimate deliverance of God, the ultimate sacrificial lamb named to Jesus Christ. So the G, and what's interesting here is Jesus even went as a, as a Jewish man, went to the temple at Passover. He and about 500,000 or half a million or so of his closest Jewish friends, because people came and they pilgrimaged from all over. They came to the temple. It says they went up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is set, it sits upon a hill. So to go to Jerusalem means you're literally going up. You're ascending the hill. But where's your heart as you ascend the hill to prepare your heart for worship? Now, in, in, in Jesus's time, in temple time in general, in the Old Testament, now even into the New Testament here, there was, when you went to Passover, if you were, if you were a Jewish man over the age of 18, you had to pay a temple tax. And you, so, and you wanted to go worship and you had to bring a spotless animal with you for worship. And so your first stop when you got to Jerusalem was where? The temple. The temple was a religious center. It was a cultural center. And so these people descended upon the temple. And when they got there, what did Jesus find? Well, in verse 14, it says this, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and money changers were there. Why were these people there? Well, if you'll see a picture of the temple here, you'll see it on the screen. This is a picture of the temple in Jesus's time. And, and if you want to Google it later and you can do a little examination on your own and look at the innate details, the ornate details, it's really powerful. But, but Billy, if you see in the center there, that's the place where the Jews were only allowed to go. And on the outer courts, there's the, the great open area is called the Gentile courts. That's where the Gentiles would hang out and, and be. And that's where when Jesus first entered, he saw these money changers. He saw these people with livestock there. What were they doing there? Well, to pay the temple tax or to make an offering, guess what? There was something called a temple currency. You had to have a specific temple currency. So if you're coming from far, you had your own currency. Now that wasn't the temple currency. So they would graciously exchange that currency that you had into temple currency, right? How nice of them. Well, for a price, of course. Now you were required to have a spotless animal to make a sacrifice. Now imagine journeying 15 miles through sweaty, dirty roads. What might've started out as a spotless animal may or may not have ended up as one, right? 
Now imagine too, just the inconvenience of walking, riding, 15, 20, 25 miles, however it was with an animal. That's hard. It's hard enough to go anywhere with kids these days, let alone an animal, right? Now, maybe you just want to go to the temple and get one for pure convenience. Well, that's a nice thing to have. So they'll sell you one. Well, for an increased price, of course. So they weren't after the glory of God. They were seeking selfish profit. And let alone, let it not be lost on you, this reality that who was the one who determined whether the animal that you brought with you was technically spotless and good enough to be sacrificed? Well, it was the religious leaders themselves who would install these vendors in the marketplace and were inevitably getting a kickback from them. It was a racket. Man. And before our hearts throughout this passage go to other places, may we continue to allow God to open our own hearts to places in our own lives where, well, we might be taking advantage of those people in the house of God as well. So Jesus enters. Does he just sit idly by or observe? No, look at verse 15. What does he do? He makes a whip of cords and he drives them out. Not some of them, all of them. He poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables said, take these things away from me and do not make my father's house a house of trade. In fact, in other places when he's in the temple and in the gospels, he said, my house is not a, is what? A house of what? Prayer, not trade. Jesus enters and he won't tolerate it. He acts swiftly. He acts decisively. He acts intentionally because God will not yield his glory to another then and God will not yield his glory to another today. You might ask yourself, what makes Jesus angry? This is righteous anger. You know what makes Jesus angry? When people who claim to know God in the house of God, distort the name of God. Disobey the word of God. When they damage the church of God, when they diminish the testimony about God. And that's what these people were doing. Are you doing that? In the way you live your life, in your way you approach God? Because God's holiness demands our reverence. God's holiness demands our reverence. Now look at what Jesus said. Take these things away. Do not make, in verse 16, do not make what? My father's house, right? So whose house is it? God's house. God's house. So whose father? Jesus. And this way, Jesus is like, I'm the son of God. This is my father's house. It's not your house. It's God's house. And friends, Harvest, this is God's house too. God's house. It's not the elder's house, the staff's house. It's not your house. I love you. You're here. You're welcome here. Your family. This is God's house. It's all about Jesus. Let that never be lost on any of us because when we begin to get distracted from that, that's when bad stuff happens. The temple 
in the Old Testament and even now in the, in the beginning of the New Testament was a, a place where God was known to dwell. When you go back into Chronicles and you, and you read the establishment of the temple, God dwelt there. He manifested his presence there. He displayed his glory there. It was a place of, to go to worship God, to make sacrifices to God, to make offerings to God, to sit under the teaching of the word of God. That's what the temple, it's all about God. And one of the really sobering realities of this text is that you can be physically present in the house of God, yet be spiritually distant and not a part of the family of God. And that applies today as well. You can be in church all your life and still miss Jesus Christ because you're making it about you. Is that you today? I, I pray that you would see the grace and the beauty of God. I'm so glad you're physically here. And we're going to talk more about that and the importance of that in a second. But nothing, nothing supersedes the importance of you being spiritually right with God. In your heart to believe. The money changers were physically present in the house of God. The livestock sellers could probably quote to you verses of God. They've probably been in the house of God for many, many years but they were far, far, far away from God. Jesus said in Mark eight, what does it profit you to gain the whole world, but lose your soul? Friends, are you here gaining the whole world financially? Climbing the corporate ladder in the military, claiming, increasing your own name, but you're losing your soul because you're far from God spiritually. Another vivid reality and implication and application of this text is that we must be true, true worshipers, not religious imposters. These, these money changers, these livestock sellers were religious imposters. They were doing what they should not be doing in a place that they should not be doing it in the house of God. They weren't revering God. They were distorting the name of God. Reverence, biblically speaking, is recognizing the greatness and the holiness of God and responding accordingly with respect and fear, with awe, with surrender, submission, with a heart of worship. It's, a, it's an honor. And when you actually look at the, what the word reverence means in, in the original languages, part of the root words for that actually connotes a literal lying down prostrate before God which is an outward representation of an inner heart condition of submission spiritually to God and a commitment to the exaltation of God that I am going to decrease and that he is going to increase, that he is in charge and I'm not. That's reverence. Is that you today? authentic reverence. We can feign reverence. We can do a bunch of body motions with our hands. We can put a bunch of money in the plate or the box. We can quote a bunch of Bible verse, but still not have our heart, our heart bending before the Lord and Savior as our one true king in faith. And that is the heart of this text, to be an authentic worshiper, to not just be going through the motions but to be genuinely reverent because when you see the greatness of God, how can we not respond with reverence for God? Because he loves us and he saves us and he is holy. And in this text, we see this beautiful reality of the duality of God that exists at the same time. God is unconditionally holy. He will not yield his glory to anyone else. Praise him. He will not lower his standard. We have to be perfect but he's also unconditionally loving at the same time. And, as, and Jesus says, look, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna take, I'm gonna lay down my life and I'm gonna raise it back up in three days, pointing to the cross. 
He's unconditionally loving because we can't meet the holiness standard, but Jesus took our place to pay our price so that he gives us his righteousness so that we can stand fully present in the house of the Lord and in the presence of God. It's beautiful. Praise God for that, his grace. But the question is, are we living reverently in response to the reality that God is holy and he's worthy? Are we not? And today we can take these, we don't, this is not the temple, but the temple was the house of God. This is the house of God. We can take the biblical principles in this text and, and apply them to how we should treat God's house today. In his church. And a church is a gathering of individual people. A set apart group of people who have been called according to the name of God to gather in worship of God and are deployed to live sent on mission for God. The question is, are we living reverently? And your individual choice impacts all of us. Reverence is an individual choice and it's a collective choice. It's a pursuit. None of us are perfect. None of us are going to live perfect, holy lives. The question is, are we pursuing that? Wherever we are in our journey of spiritual maturity, are we pursuing reverence? Are we pursuing holiness in response to who God is? When we see his greatness, are we pursuing holiness through his grace? We can't do it our own. We can't just, we have to have the strength of God to pursue the holiness of God. But are you pursuing that? Is that your priority? Is that your desire? Is that your delight? Or are you just a religious imposter? You know some verses, you come to church a couple times and when you stand before holy God one day, he'll say, get apart from me because I never knew you. What, I did this, I gave this, I did this. Read Matthew 7. He, Jesus will look at you and say, get apart from me. I cast you away. Why? Because I never knew you personally. You never believed. You played the part. You had the religious outfit. You quoted the religious verses, but you never surrendered your heart in authentic reverence to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Get away from me just like he did with the money changers. Matthew 7 says he will cast you away. And I love you too much to not say that. Will you reverently submit your heart to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, when you view him for who he is? Now, my question for you is this. Jesus, so many of us cheat, 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 uh, treat Jesus and God and his house flippantly. When Jesus entered the house of God, then he, he flipped some tables. If Jesus were to enter harvest right here, if he were to enter your heart and life, what would he do? How would he respond? What tables would he flip in this place? Literally, metaphorically, spiritually, all of the above. What tables would he flip in your own heart? Where are you just playing the game and look, there's room for growth. None of us are perfect here. We are all here. And I'm so thankful for whatever reason that you're here, that you are here. And God has brought you here. He has a purpose for you here. And I pray he would meet you here. But I think we need to take with the reality, the severity of what Jesus is doing and teaching us here. Does Jesus, looking at this text, does Jesus take reverence for God very seriously? Yeah, he does. Do you? So here's some tables of irreverence that I think if Jesus walked into the church at large today, and it may or may not be here, I think there's some things in all of our churches and all of our own hearts that he would flip, that Jesus would flip. And again, as we think about this, think about the other side of the coin, like in view of who God is, how could we not desire to live reverently? I mean, I know sinful in our flesh, it's a daily battle because ultimately the choice is, am I worshiping my savior or am I worshiping myself? 
That's what it really comes down to. That's what it really comes down to. We're all worshipers. We'll look at that in a minute. But are you worshiping your savior or yourself? Here are some tables that I think Jesus might flip today that are irreverent. One is consumerism. I'm just here for me. I'm here for what I can get out of it. Oh, you got a good light show on the, on the back during worship. Awesome, I'm here. Are you not entertained? Church is not here for your entertainment. I love you. It's here for God's glory. If you're here to be entertained, you're in the wrong place. I pray that God would meet you where you are. But are you just here for what you can get out of it? Are you here to really give glory and honor to the one true king? Are you selfish and self-centered? I'll do this if you do that for me. If it advances my motives, then I'll do it. And I get it, it's hard. It's the reality, where does God want me? And I've had so many conversations over eight plus years of this church. Well, I like a bigger church because I just like to slide in and slide out, not be noticed. You know what reverence is? Obeying the word of God. Where in the word of God does it say church means to slide in and slide out and not be noticed? Newsflash, nowhere. <coughs> Read the book of Acts. You're called to give your life to God and to one another. It's called to 1 Peter 4, use your gifts to serve one another, to build up the church. To do that is to be irreverent. To not do that is to be irreverent because it's to be disobedient. Where are you just here to consume rather than contribute? What's the opposite of consumer? What is, it, what is irreverent? To show up, to come, to be here, and to be open-handed, be open-hearted, to be here, to be on time, to be ready, to have a heart open, to listen to the word. Not, not the words that Andrew or I say, Pastor Andrew or I say or anybody else that's behind the pulpit or, or teaching a class or a small group, but to hear the word of God, the Holy Spirit speaking and to apply it appropriately. No matter what it means, convict me, God, for wherever I need to be convicted. God, send me wherever you need to send me. Ask me to do whatever you want and I will do it because you are God and I am not. Submission, exaltation, that's reverence. And what a privilege that is, amen? We're so short-sighted and we miss out so much. Convenience, he might flip the table of convenience. And I thought about putting some real tables and flipping them over here, right? Or asking Pastor Andrew to come through right about now with a whip, right? You know, like a real practical application. But I don't think you need that reality or maybe you do, but to see the severity of the situation. Somewhat, we just blow this off or we think about other places, other churches we've been, they do that. I would never do that. Like, don't look out there, look in here first. In your own heart. I'm going to go to church when it's convenient. I woke up, I got a slight headache. I'm going to stay home. I'm not, I'm not bashing this. Or I got my kids' games. Or I got plans. Or I'm going to play. Like, what's first in your life? God or something else? Cultural Christianity. You would flip that one over in a heartbeat. God's word's not absolute. It's relative. As culture changes, so does my view of God's word. Come on. God's word is absolutely absolute. God's word stands. Seasons come and seasons go. Can I tell you what reverence means? God, Jesus desires reverence more than relevance. Don't try to be relevant to the culture, be reverent to Christ. Anchor in that. Anchor in that. That's beauty in that. 
religious moralism. He would flip that one over so hard. Oh, I just need to do, do, do to be a good enough person. No, you can't, you can't, you won't. Only the gospel of God, only the grace of God saves you. You can't be good enough to earn salvation. Uh, we're just here to raise good kids, raise godly kids. Focus on being godly rather than good. Pursue holiness more than happiness. What are you pursuing? Religious tradition, well, you know what happens with religious tradition? Well, we've always done it this way and somehow that religious tradition rises up to the equivalence of the Bible. I know it's not. It's anchored in spiritual pride. It's anchored in your sacred cow because you want and what you really don't realize that you're actually doing is serving the God of self more than the one true God. And look, it takes all kinds of churches to reach all kinds of people. That's why we want to plant churches. I'm not talking like some people like, there's nothing wrong with, I would prefer to go to a church with more hymns or whatever. Maybe, maybe not. Like, where's your heart at? It's about your heart, remember? It's okay to have preferences, but when your preferences rise up to the equivalence level of God's word, that's idolatry. There's no sacred cows in God's church. There's only a sacred Christ. Where in your life have you allowed religious traditions to rise up to gospel level, God's word level? This is my ministry. Anytime you start to say the word my about anything God related, you're in trouble. It's God's ministry. It's God's church. It's God's house. It's God's. My means I, it's, it's, I'm possessing something that I don't really deserve or have. Spiritual pride really could be with any of these can I tell you this salvation doesn't come from the accumulation of religious information. It comes from heart transformation only by the grace of God, through the power of God, by the gospel of God, for the glory of God. Right. And there's a balance between legalism and license and legalism is I'm making it about me. I don't want this to come across as legalism. And this pastor and I were, uh, Andrew and I were talking, he, he's pointed this out. It was great. Again, you, the difference between legalism and reverence is reverence is about what God is getting out of it. Legalism is like what I'm getting out of it. Reverence is what God wants. Legalism is what I want. And there's license involved. Like different ones of us have different levels of personal conviction, but love should always trump license. Just like love should always trump legalism. We want to tear down gospel barriers. We want to tear them down in gospel obstacles. We want to be reverent. Different, and we have different personal preferences. That's Okay. We have different levels of conviction. Some people still to this day are like, I need to wear a suit and tie to church because God dem demands my best. Awesome. But there's no scripture and verse that says you must wear shirt, shirt and tie. Like, but it's a heart issue, right? But we want to give God our best here at Harvest. And there's a lot of flexibility. You may or may not agree with this and that's okay. Like, but our, what's driven, we, have a, we even have a dress code on the, for the worship team. The heart of that is for reverence. The heart and different people would want different things. It's too much. It's too little. It's too this, too that. Well, the heart is we don't want to, we want to minimize distractions and we want to point you to Jesus Christ in everything. And I get it. Different people will draw the line in different places. There's liberty and license in that. Praise God. But may we never allow that to trump the gospel. And may our hearts always be making it about God and not us. Hypocrisy. When your outer life doesn't match the inner when your walk doesn't match your talk, when you're at work and you're a different person than you are at home, when you're up late at night texting somebody 
It's not God honoring things that you're texting. When you respond to that email on Wednesday, it's not in the way that God would have you respond. It's not, you're not submitting yourself to the authority of God's word. We are all hypocrites in some ways. Your whole life is worship. Lethargy. Eh, I'll live on God's mission when I want to live on God's mission. It's not for me today. Eh. We are saved by God's grace. Yes, read Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Praise God for that. It's not by works in the man can boast, but don't forget 10, verse 10. To do what? The works that God has for us before the beginning of time. We are saved by God's grace. Read Colossians 1. Paul's like, I toil for the gospel through the strength that God gives me. It's not my own strength. It's God's strength, but I am pouring it out so that the kingdom of God can advance. Stinginess when it comes to loving or serving or giving. Giving financially is worship. Did you know that? Read the Bible, read the New Testament. Would your level of giving to God's church equate to a reverential level, a reverential level of who God is? Tithing, offering God's works inside this church, outside this church, everything else comes after that. Everything else comes after that. Different line for different people, but that's God's best. I mean, we're family. The house of God is the household of God. So let's be real. Just so you guys know, like our, our giving this month is, we have a $25,500 budget on a monthly basis. So far this month has been given $11,450. I believe that God's gonna provide, but my question for you is this, are you personally giving to the level of God's reverence? It's not about the budget or anything else. It's about a heart of worship. Do you give, do you ascribe God to worth with the way in which you give? And if not, what needs to change? What must change? What's the next step to change? And that's not just for here, but that's for everywhere. You're giving of all of your stewardship, of all of your resources. Where are you seeking the Lord? A true worshiper gives God their best because they realize that God is worthy of their best in general, in all aspects, my heart, my life. Reverence is a, is a heart thing. It's a head thing. It's a hands thing. It's a habit thing. It's a, my flesh wants to do something this way, but God's word says I should do it a different way. So guess what I'm going to do? My way or God's way? Robert meets the road. Big things, small things. I'm going to do it God's way, right? That's reverence. So will you live with authentic worship and authentic reverence? The second attribute of a true heart worshiper, a true worshiper is this on a heart level, is the right attitude, zealous exaltation, zealous exaltation, as, as Jesus is going and he's cleansing the temple here, look what in verse 17, as the disciples see Jesus in his heart posture towards the house of God, what's their response in verse 17? They remember that it was written. Isn't it amazing? They remember scripture. Zeal for your house will consume me. They are quoting here Psalm 69 that David wrote. King David had a zeal for the house of the Lord. He never got to build the house of the Lord. He never got to build the temple as a consequence for his sin, but he loved the house of the Lord because he loved God. And just as Jesus is a true and greater David, as Tim Keller calls him, right here, Jesus too is exhibiting zeal for the house of the Lord. What I love about this text, right, is we see a reference to the Passover, which actually the Passover points to Jesus as the lamb of God. And we see Jesus walk in with a whip and he's like the lion of God, right? He's a lion and a lamb here in this text. It's amazing to see all attributes of Jesus Christ and how the gospel and how reverence includes both being a lion and a lamb for Jesus Christ. 
Now, when it comes to the purity and the authenticity of worship of God, was, was Jesus apathetic about it or was he proactive about it here in this text? He's proactive. He's gonna do something about it. How many of us are just apathetic in our own life to the house of the Lord? What, it, what a beautiful thing happens in 18 is this. Because zeal, zeal means a passion, a fervor and a passion, a passionate fervor. And in verse 18, the Jews, the Jewish leader said to them, what signs do you show us for doing these things? Essentially what they were asking right here in 18 is who gives you the authority to come into God's house and do this? They were ticked. Like it's a big deal what Jesus did, right? Like huge deal. Like he could get in big, big trouble culturally that day, religiously and all this. And Jesus answered him, how? In verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rise it up. And the Jews are like, hold on, let me take my shoes off for a second. Let me take my 40, it took 46 years. I can't even count that high to build this thing. And you tell me in three days, you're going to rebuild this. Jesus was speaking about a deeper spiritual truth that they couldn't get. And, Jesus, and then John, the author who was writing us back to after what happened, he clues us in and he says in verse 21, but Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus was talking about, referring to himself as the temple. That I will be crucified and in three days I will be risen up. And he actually says here, look at the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. Who will, write, who will raise up the temple on the third day? He says, I. Jesus has a part and a power in his own resurrection. Praise God. You know, later in, in, in other passages in scripture, Jesus says, I am the what? I am the resurrection. I am the life. I will raise it up. Praise God for the power of Jesus. He's declaring that right here and the authority and the sovereignty. And John is looking back. Remember, John writes several decades after Jesus has already been crucified and resurrected and ascended. And in verse 22, look at, what, look at what John says. And when therefore Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples, him included, what? Remembered what he said and they did what in response to remembering? They believed. It took them three years to understand what Jesus was saying. So we should give ourselves a little grace wherever we are in a spiritual journey that all spiritual truths might not be understood by us right now. Praise God for that. But they believed, they responded with believe and they received life. So what is zealous exaltation? One, Jesus is exalting God, the father throughout this text here. But there's another one in this text who deserves to be exalted. You see the temple points to Jesus. It points to Jesus. How do we see that? Well, John, the author here, John, the apostle is revealing a couple very important characteristics and drawing some parallels between the temple and Jesus. The temple was a house of worship where God met man. Now, Jesus is God and through him, God will meet man anew in a unique way, way through a personal restored relationship with him when he is crucified on the one day and raised to life on three days later. When Jesus was crucified, the curtain in the temple literally was torn in two, meaning that you and I now can have direct access to God in a very personal and relational way that we can meet with God personally. We don't no longer do we need an intermediary. So Jesus ushers us into the reality of God's presence. Praise God for that. Amen. What a beautiful thing. And Jesus, the, the temples where sacrifices were offered for sin. And so Jesus in this text, when it talks about Jesus saying, destroy this temple, destroy me. And in three days, I will raise it up. He's talking about when he's going to go to the cross as the ultimate sacrifice once and for all for our sin, paying our price forever. 
And because he is God and because he is the Messiah, which he's declaring right here, I am the Messiah. I'm the one that's gonna pay the price for your sin. We must exalt Jesus as well with a passion and a zealous adoration. Praise the Lord, amen. Say praise God after him. Praise God, right? Do you know you can say that in church? It's allowed to say that. You can say it when we worship and sing. You can say it here when we preach. It's allowed to say praise God because that is what? Zealous exaltation. I am going to exalt. I am going to lift Jesus over. I am going to ascribe the worth that Jesus is due because he went and paid the price for my sin. Praise God. Amen. We should never be shy or bashful about that. I want to give you freedom in that and expressing that. So what does it mean to be zealously ascribe Jesus to what, it, what, it, what he's worth? I think that there is a declaration aspect to zealous exaltation. How do I know that? Look at the text. Jesus is declaring the reality of the gospel. He's saying, I am going to be raised in three days. It took John a little bit to understand it, but Jesus declared it. With your life and with your lips, are you declaring who Jesus is? Are you declaring the gospel? Are you declaring praise to God, both through worship and on Sunday mornings and in your everyday life? We, we talk about worship here at Harvest as one of our pillars is unashamed adoration, right? We want to be unashamed about adoring Jesus. Are you really doing that and living that? What would it look like if we sang that way in church? What would it look like if we came in full voice and sang with unashamed, however God has wired you, However passion comes out of you, if we sang with full voice and declared the beauty of the gospel that is described right here in this text, what would it look like if you lived that way on Monday at work tomorrow? What would it look like if you chose to anchor your marriage in the reality of the gospel, to declare the gospel with Jesus, the centrality of Jesus in my heart and my life? What would it look like? What needs to change so that will happen? Because that is zealous exaltation. Because did you know that in this text, it, we talk about the physical temple and then Jesus says, I am the temple. And did you know that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, that you know who else is in the, who else is the temple? You and I are as believers. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, that, that we are God's temple because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. The temple is a place where God dwells. And so with our whole lives as the temple of God, we should be declaring the greatness and the glory of God as members of the church of God. And we're members of the church of God, whether we're gathered at 585 Old Oak Road or whether we're on a Wednesday at Starbucks or in our workplace. Are we declaring the greatness and the glory of God with our life with ex zealous exaltation? The other aspect of this that we see here is not only a declaration aspect of zealous exaltation, but a pure heart purification aspect of zealous exaltation. What did Jesus do in the first three or four verses? 14, 15, 16, he went into the house of God and anything that was irreverent, what did he do? Let it hang out. Passively? No, he cleaned it out. He cleared it out. He said, get out of my house. You have no place here. What would it look like in your own heart and life if you asked Jesus to do the very same thing in your heart today? To clean out, to clear out anything that was irreverent. Anything that was stealing the glory from God. Anything that is a form of self-worship. Anything that was an idol. Anything, if you laid it all on the table and say, God, just what you did in the physical temple here, Jesus, do it in my heart because I am your temple, as 1 Corinthians says. What would that look like? It's scary to think about, isn't it? What would change? A lot would probably change. But it goes to the heart posture of you desiring to be 
a true worshiper? Are you unwilling? A religious imposter holds on to things of self. A true worshiper in every sense of the way wants to lay everything on the table and say, Jesus, have your way in me. Here's a verse that I find very helpful that I prayed this week that I would encourage you to maybe pray every day this week in your, in your time with the Lord. Psalm 139, 23, 24, you'll see it on the screen. It's a prayer. It's the heart of David. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is what? Any grievous, irreverent way in me and then what? Lead me in the way everlasting. What would your prayer life look like if you prayed that every day this week? When you go into work, when you come home from work, Purify me, Jesus, like you purified the temple here in this text, because I want to be your temple. I want to be a true worshiper. I want to exalt you over all, zealously, passionately. That means get everything out. Another text in the, in the New Testament, Jesus said, if your arms calls on you to sin, what should you do with it? Tolerate it? Let it hang out? No, cut it off. But how many of us, and we're like, religious imposters do this. They play spiritual hokey pokey. They get up to the ledge and they're like, how close to the line can I get without going over, right? True worshipers go, how close to Jesus can I get? to the distinct difference. Because if you get close to the line, guess where you're going to go? You're probably going to go over it at some point. Where in your life, as a true worshiper, do you need to ask God to reveal where you are living irreverently and then do whatever it takes to allow Jesus to cleanse that from you? And we see God's grace in this text by sending Jesus to die and pay the price for our sin there is no sin that you are committing right now that God's grace will not cover. Praise God. Our hope is not on us doing better. It's in that, in that Jesus has already paid our price. It's the grace of God. We can rest in that as we look to exalt God for that. And finally, the third and final characteristic of a true worshiper is this. It's a true worshiper has the right object, Jesus Christ. This is the heart of worship. Ultimately, are you worshiping yourself were you worshiping your savior? We are all worshipers. The question not is we, do we worship? The question is what? What do we worship? Who is the object of our worship? Who are we ascribing worth to? Where are we giving our money to? Where are we giving our time to? And honestly, if you looked at your calendar and your checkbook or bank account, those would be very, very revealing probably to some things that you worship in your life. You make time for what matters, even when you're busy. You find money for what you really care about even when you're struggling. Now, there are, there are seasons and different things in our life, but it's very revealing. A true worshiper seeks the Lord. A true worshiper does what the disciples did in verse 22. His disciples remembered. He rem they remembered that Jesus said that, I am the temple, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And what was their response to seeing the greatness of Jesus Christ? What did they do? They believed. They surrendered. They submitted. They worshiped. Because at its core, worship is less of me and more of Jesus. Ascribing and elevating Jesus to the place that he is. Ascribing worth to Jesus and elevating Jesus over me. To put my trust in. I'm going to choose to believe you, Jesus, over me. I'm going to choose to follow you, Jesus, over what I want. My friends tell me to do this. I'm going to do my word, what your word says. My flesh says to do this. I'm going to do what your word says. Because you're the boss and I'm not. So the question for you today is who is your object of worship? 
reminding again, as you look at verses 24 and 25, Jesus knew all the people and no one needed to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. You can fool me. You can be a religious imposter here, but Jesus knows you. You will not fool Jesus. He knows what's inside of you. He knows your heart condition right now. He knows the hidden sins in your life. God's grace is abundant. I pray and I plead with you from the heart of God that you will lay down your false religion, your masks, and that you would just come as you are, because God's grace will meet you where you are. He will love you where you are, and he will change and transform you forever where you are. You don't need to hide it. You don't need to be ashamed about it. God's grace covers your guilt. His mercy is enough for your mess. When you see him as greater, you are willing to come as you are because nothing compares to this. You're willing to lay it down and just come. Will you do that today? Will you do that tomorrow? You could trust in the Lord that his word is better and greater than whatever circumstances you're walking through. That he's bigger because he literally is. You're elevating him. You're exalting him. You're revering him. You're ascribing the worth that he's due. You're eliminating distractions. You're eliminating the idols. Good things, Paul Tripp says, become idolatrous things when they become ruling things. Out with the ruling things in our life that are of earth and focus our hearts on the Lord. Where do you need to follow the Lord? Today, not tomorrow, but right now. One of my favorite stories about how God has been working at Harvest, and there are many, because he's working and God writes amazing stories, doesn't he? Is one that happened in the spring. A guy showed up on Sunday and he showed up on Tuesday again. And on Tuesday at a worship night, he came to me and we were talking and he looked at me and said, I don't know what I'm doing here, man. I don't know what I'm doing here. I've been at church a couple times in my life, but this is probably the first time I kind of want to be at church. I don't know what I'm doing here. I just know I need to be here. What are you doing here? A few weeks later, God reached into the heart of this man and he, he gave him a heart of flesh. He, he saved him from a heart of stone. He saved his life. A few weeks after that, he was baptized. Talked to him recently. He goes, I now know what I was doing here. I now know what I'm doing here. I want to follow the Lord. I want to learn what it's like. I want to learn God's word. I want to walk with the Lord. It's hard, but I want God's way. It's surrender. Have you surrendered in your heart and life? Would you bow your heads? As Amy plays, I just want to sit in this moment for a minute. Are you building your life today, friends, on yourself or on your Savior? Where right now do you need to confess your sins? Where do you need to choose to trust in a heart of surrender? What changes do you need to make to live reverently in response to Jesus' vast superiority? If you're willing, would you pray that prayer from Psalm 139 right now? Scott, would you throw that back up there if you can? Search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, God, and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Ask God to search your heart right now and lead you on the next step he wants you to take and then a true worshiper would obey.
and respond. So we're just gonna sit in this for a minute. Would you pray that prayer and listen to the Holy Spirit? Father, thank you so much that you love us. You love us enough to send your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us. To reveal to us the areas of our life that are not in alignment with living reverently for you. You sent Jesus into our life to die on the cross, God, to save us from our sins, God. To give us mercy when we didn't deserve us, take away the punishment that we did deserve and to offer us freely by your grace, the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. The way, the truth, and the life. God, and in this moment, we just declare the reality that we need you. We ask that you would forgive the ways that we have lived irreverently and idolatrously apart from you. And we would ask that you would cover us afresh in your grace, God that you would stir up an affection for you in our hearts that, would res- that we would respond with joyful obedience, delighting in your presence, desiring nothing but you, Jesus, as, as Lord of all in our lives, God. For those areas in our life that we have been locked away for so long, may we bring them to the foot of the cross, knowing and trusting that your grace is enough, that you are good even when we are not, that your forgiveness is unlimited, that your love is unconditional, that your welcome is without judgment, and that we would choose to just come humbly and reverently and in desperate need of you, Jesus. That we would stop worrying about what the world says about us or others think about us, and that we would throw ourselves on the reality of that you love us, that you died for us, that you came for us, and that's enough. And may that be so glorious to us that we would choose to live with reverence and awe and wonder and splendor of who you are to us and what you've done for us. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. Amen.